When the 19th century novelist Joseph Furphy was asked, in light of the fact that all Australians were British subjects at the time, and remained so until 1947, how he thought about himself and his writing, he replied that he was offensively Australian. I think that phrase is an apt one for several of the stories in this section of the book. The story of the Charters Towers riot is a case in point. The failure of European settlers to understand the continent they had invaded is the source of quite a few stories covering events and consequences that leave me shaking my head in disbelief. Here's an example. In spite of being advised by the indigenous population that the Flinders Rangers were not always as green and fertile as early pioneers found them, white settlers established wheat farms in a period of good seasons which soon became abandoned ghost settlements when the normal seasons returned. Abandoned and ruined farmhouses are now a picturesque feature of the area. Early white settlers at Gundagai were advised by the local Aborigines not to build on the south side of the Murrumbidgee River. The advice was ignored, and when a flood wiped out the settlement in 1856 and drowned 89 people, a third of the white population... The Aborigines used their canoes to rescue the survivors, who finally took the advice and shifted the town to the other side of the river. Most Australians are aware of the infestation of prickly pear that wiped out millions of acres of grazing land in New South Wales and Queensland, but how many Aussies know who brought the pest to Australia? It was the man credited with founding the British settlement, good old Captain Arthur Phillip himself. Philip loaded up with the noxious cactus in South America as the first fleet headed southward with its cargo of human flotsam. Why? Well, the cochineal beetle lives on the prickly pear. You can see it in white fungus-like colonies on the cactus pads. When squashed, the tiny beetles turn bright red and provide brilliant scarlet cochineal dye which was used to make the famous British military redcoats red. Philip thought a handy supply of red dye would be a great thing, and he needed the cactus to feed the beetles. The prickly pear story has quite a few amazing twists and turns. Scientists persevered with importing various cactus-eating bugs until the hilariously named Cactoblastus moth was imported, survived and flourished and wiped out the entire infestation. This tiny moth made millionaires out of many speculative farmers and graziers who bought the cactus-infested land for virtually nothing. After billions of little Cactoblastus caterpillars ate the millions of acres of cactus, those lucky land speculators were left with prime grazing land, most of which is still farmed by their descendants to this day. In the tiny town of Boonagar, near Dolby, the beneficiaries of the destruction of the prickly pear at least had the good grace to pay tribute to their tiny saviours. While the vast majority of memorial halls in rural Australia are dedicated to those who served in two world wars, the memorial hall in Boonagar is dedicated to the memory of the little grub that ate the cactus. The hall is called the Cactoblastus Memorial Hall. As the little Cactoblastus ate nothing but prickly pear, it didn't prove to be a pest afterwards either, like the notorious cane toad. 
which didn't actually eat the sugarcane pests it was imported to eat. Cactoblastus did its job and then died away with the cactus. The cane toad, we soon discovered, ate everything but the pests it was imported to control. One unfortunate victim of the prickly pear invasion was the poor old emu. In spite of the fact that there was a lot of evidence to prove that the prickly pear was pretty good at spreading itself rather quickly, the emu copped the blame for spreading the seeds of the cactus by eating them, running a distance and pooping them out. So a bounty was placed on emus and the poor old gangly birds were shot in their thousands. You rarely see an emu in that part of Australia now.